we're busy with the theme that's actually probably going to take us most of the year, but we're l launching it quite intensively in this term. Uh, and that theme, as you would have heard last week, is called the Disciples' Quest. The Disciples' Quest. And we're using this idea of exp exploring this topic of what does it mean to be more fully a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the next couple of weeks in the book of Ephesians. And so I'll talk to you a little bit tonight about Ephesians in general, and we'll climb into one of the paragraphs in, in chapter 1. But a to be a disciple just simply means that you've decided to follow Jesus, to pattern or to model your life after Jesus and to learn from him. It's not just learning what he said. It's actually taking it and then doing something with it and changing it and applying it in your life. In fact, the, the Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes, and it carries with us this idea of being an apprentice or wanting to emulate, to copy somebody's life, to pattern your life after their life. I once heard someone teaching on this, excuse me, and uh, they said it was in the first century world, look, they all, you know, they walked wherever they went, no Uber, okay, uh, and some of you know what that feels like still anyway, and, uh, but they walked in the dust, no tarred roads, and so to be a disciple of somebody literally meant you walked in the dust of the master, okay, and so when we think of Jesus' 12 disciples, they walked in the dust of Jesus. There's this idea that you're so closely following him. And as I was thinking about this and this concept of quest, quest is a purposeful journey. So we're disciples, we want to follow Jesus, we want to pattern our lives off to his life, and we want to be intentional about it. We want to go where God is, is going. It's important, <coughs> sure, it's okay, I'll, all pointing at the water and Sorry, I'm not choked up. That um, as we go on this quest, our danger is that it becomes this journey of self-effort, that in our own strength and in our own abilities, we want to try and get hold of God and everything that He has for us. But I want to encourage, as we'll see a little bit later, this isn't a journey that you do out of yourself. This is a journey you do with God. This is a journey you do because the Spirit of God lives in you and empowers you and enables you to do that. As we look at the book of Ephesians, we find that as Paul wrote it, uh, he wrote it from prison, by the way. It's just wonderful the things these people, are, well, Paul at least wrote from prison. He's in prison in Rome, probably somewhere AD 63 to AD 65, and he writes this masterpiece about the church and about what God has done in Jesus and what that means for the church and then how we live in response to that. And if we look at the book of Ephesians, we find in it two clear halves, okay, basically in our divisions, chapter 1 to 3, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 1 to 3, there's quite a big focus on what God has done for us, what we should believe about what God has done for us. It's not only that. There's some real practical things in, like in chapter 2, where he talks about how God has reconciled Jew and Gentile together. But it, largely the focus in the first three chapters is about what God has done and what we should believe. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul pivots and he turns and he says, well, given everything that God has done, given everything that we believe about the grand scope of God's purposes, how do we behave? How do we live? And we find the key verse probably for Ephesians, most commentators would agree, chapter 4, verse 1, is this key verse. It happens right there at this pivot where Paul moves from believe to behave. And in the New Living Translation, it says it this way. It says, therefore... 
I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. In some of the more literal translations, uh, New King James, New American Standard versions, I get, it phrases it this way. It says, I urge you to walk a worthy walk. And that is the walk of the disciple, to walk a worthy walk. And there's a, there's a whole lot that's rich in that verse that we can't unpack. But last week, Sunday morning, Pastor Louis shared uh, just on this verse specifically. And I'd so encourage you to perhaps watch it on YouTube. You guys have heard of YouTube, eh? It's like Instagram on steroids. Um, I discovered it this week. There's like cool stuff there. Um, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> but on YouTube, uh, it's, just, it's, it's actually like, now, I'd rate it like a world-class message that Pastor Louis preached last week Sunday. So if you can get it, there's a whole lot there in Ephesians 4.1. And so kind of one of the taglines we're working with at the moment as we're going into Ephesians is that the disciples' beliefs must be matched by the disciples' actions. The disciples' beliefs must be matched by the disciples' actions. And as I heard the sermon last week in the morning, and, and I know Letitia said along the same lines, uh, last Sunday night about believe, belong, behave. Okay, it's like all these fancy stuff. Um, as I was engaging with it and as I was looking at Ephesians in the week, I realized that for often in our society we've created, probably in our modern world, false distinctions. We've created a distinction between things that are spiritual and things that are natural. We've created a distinction often about what we believe and how we behave. And that's not always bad because often we're on a journey to reconcile our beliefs and behavior, and I'll maybe talk a little bit about that just now. But I remember I grew up going to Sunday school. Anybody else? Yeah, some of us. Whose mom was a Sunday school teacher? And now we know why you went. Um, but I grew up and we were well taught in the Sunday schools I went to. And so I knew about Jesus, and I knew what I was supposed to believe about Jesus. But I never made the connection that that had to affect how I behaved, except sitting really still in Sunday school class when your best friend's busy pinching you, trying to get a reaction out of you, which never happened to me, and I never did it to anybody either. Um, but I realized that for a number of years in my life, I believed things about Jesus, but I wasn't actually a true follower of Jesus. This is wisdom from hindsight, if I can call it that. I gave my life to Jesus. I committed my life to following him when I was 15 years old. And I remember when I, I prayed what we often call the sinner's prayer, I confessed my sins to God. I turned from the way I was living and decided to stop living for myself and to start living for him. And I believed that Jesus would forgive my sins and give me eternal life. Something happened that night in my life and that the Spirit of God came and lived in me. And I had this experience where from that day on, my life was quite different. For example, I was in a boys' hostel at the time. Boys' hostels are wonderful places for holiness and sanctification and, and things like that. But I was in a boys' hostel, and then we went away on a camp. Uh, it was part of our confirmation process in the church I was in at that time. And uh, they made this altar call, and I stayed behind, and all my friends left. And I couldn't believe they were leaving. So I, I don't know, peer pressure didn't work on me. Um, but when I got back to hostel the next day, suddenly I heard language I'd never noticed before. And I realized that 
I had been one of the champions of bad language in the hostel. Uh, if there was a competition, I might have even won it. But from that day, something changed in my life, and I couldn't talk like that anymore. Another thing that changed in my life in that day is I got a hunger for the Word of God, and I started reading the Bible. So I was in high school. I was in Standard 8 at that stage, which was grade 10 now. I was a year younger because I'm smart. No. <laughs> my mom just put me in school then because um, she was a teacher. I told you. Um, and I got this hunger for the Word of God, and so I started reading the Bible, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12. I read through the New Testament two, three times a year. And that's not because I'm a good reader. It's because there was this hunger that God had stirred in me, like Letitia read, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I didn't generate that hunger. The Spirit of God did it in me. But until that point in my life, there was a gap between what I believed and what I behaved. And since we're talking about the disciples' quest, perhaps I could say it this way. I believed things about God, but I wasn't actually a disciple. I hadn't decided to emulate Jesus, to pattern my life after Jesus, to learn his teachings, and actually then realize that, there was, that I had to do something in response to what God said. Another way to put it is that I had to realize there wasn't a distinction between Sunday and Monday. Because often we come to church on Sundays because we believe it's the right thing to do. We believe certain things about Jesus, but we don't realize that that has an impact on how we live on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. In fact, some people come to church on a Sunday just to make sure that God doesn't kill them for what they did on Saturday night. Everyone's looking really holy at the moment. It's wonderful. Which, can I just say, rather come. It's great. Okay. And so we're on this journey, and we want to step now into Ephesians chapter 1, and the title for this message in this series is Blessed in Christ, because in Ephesians 1, as you'll see now, it talks about being blessed in Christ. And as we get there, if you have a device here or a Bible, the scriptures will come up on the screen, but if you can just engage with it directly, because I'm kind of going to read sections and, and we'll go through it. And as you're getting there, I wonder what your experience of, has been of being a disciple. Do you just believe things about God? And, you know, you do your duty on a Sunday? Or has it actually extended beyond that? Can you remember when you decided to become a disciple of Jesus? And so let's look at the text. And the title, as we said, is Blessed in God. And we're going to look at verses 3 to 14. And I'm going to go quite quickly through it. I'm going to do what's called a running commentary, which basically means I'm going to read it and highlight certain portions. And they'll like, even be in bigger text on the screen just to make it, like, Fancy, okay? It's not as good as YouTube, but it's PowerPoint, people. Okay. It's interesting if we look at these couple of verses, uh, 12 odd verses in Ephesians 13 to 14 of chapter 1. When Paul wrote this in the original Greek and in all the manuscripts we have, it's all one long sentence, which makes it quite challenging to translate for, from the Greek to the English, which is why I like professional people who do that, you know. But it's one sentence. It's also unconventional what Paul does here as he gets into Ephesians. Because in the first century, they had quite a specific style of writing. Remember when you were at school and you had to learn to write business letters? Some of you just never learned that. <laughs> but you know, you learned that there was a certain format to a letter. Okay, let's try a different one. You know when you write an email, you usually say hello first. And, and then you say other stuff. Okay, there's, there's a style, there's a format to, to writing. Um, doesn't count for WhatsApp or 
Snapchat. Okay. Sure. Am I like in queue and I know like Snapchat? Is it? <laughs> okay. Lost my train of thought. But there's quite a stylized way that they wrote in the first century. So what you would normally do is you would do a very formal greeting like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful ones, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's kind of the standard greeting. Then the next thing you would normally do is you would do like a thanksgiving prayer. This wasn't just Christians. This is how everybody wrote. You would say, you know, I thank God that I heard about you, whatever your God was, you know, in the town that you're in because it was usually regional. Uh, I thank God for you and as I remember you, and I pray that the gods will bless you. That was kind of how the non-Christians would write. And then you would kind of just say like a prayer to the God for them. Now, Paul doesn't do that here as he gets into Ephesians because he's, he's writing to them about everything God has done for them, how they're blessed in Christ, and he kind of forgets the appropriate protocol. And he does his greeting, and then he jumps in, and he goes, praise be or blessed be. He just is so caught up in what God does. And so let's read with Paul uh, what Paul wrote for us from verse 3. We'll read from verse 3 to 6, and then we'll just comment on some sections. So Paul writes, and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. I'm going to bring up a couple of slides, and before we get into maybe looking at some of the different phrases, I just want to highlight something that goes through this whole passage, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. If you can bring up the slide with the underline on it, next one. Brilliant, thank you. You'll notice that everything that happens here, the blessings in Christ, everything God has done, everything the Father has initiated, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life that we'll get to later, all of it happens because you're in Christ. And this phrase, this idea of in Christ, through Christ, under Christ, by Christ, is repeated over and over. Because, you know, sometimes we sing that song that Jesus is the center. Okay. What Paul is kind of going here is Jesus is the center, but he's everything else as well. Okay? Everything else, everything that God has done has been accomplished in and through Jesus. That's where Paul's going. So this phrase is repeated, and we'll keep it underlined as we go through the different texts. But it's just important that you understand that you have to be in Christ to qualify for this. I shared earlier how I came to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, sorry, <laughs> but consider it, because it's only in Christ that you can access everything that God has for you. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this. I'm going to kind of look at a bit about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the reason I take this angle, even though everything's in Christ, and we could probably list all the blessings we have here as being in Christ and through Christ, is there is definitely this role of all the persons of the Godhead involved in the situation. Kind of a bit like this. All of God is involved for all of you. Is that okay? All of God is involved for all of you. So let's look, go through the phrases. First one we want to look at is in verse 3. It says, He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So before we get to this heavenly realms phrase, what I do want to just land 
is that God has provided everything we need for our journey in life. Not just our spiritual journey. He's provided in the Spirit for us, but that translates. And you'll see as we get to the end of this passage how God intends that it translates. But God has provided everything we need. There's nothing that God wants you to grow into, become, give up, become more like Him, any mission He has for you, any quest He sends you on, that He has not provided what you need for that. He has given you every spiritual blessing. If you're really clever, you can go look this up in the Greek. And you look up that word every, you know what it's going to mean? Every. Okay. Everything you need, every spiritual blessing God has given you. Now, if you're a little skeptical, you might go, well, that's wonderful. It's in the heavenly realms, and I need it here and now. Okay? Just stick with, the, stick with the text, and we'll see how God helps us to translate that. Is that okay? Part of what happens is that our life primarily starts in the Spirit. Okay? God wants us to live from His life in us, from the Spirit outward. So He gives us what we need here so that it can come out through us to others and into the world around us. Okay? So he starts by giving us everything we need in the Spirit as a primary source. If you want a nice phrase, we start and continue our quest blessed. Okay? We're blessed on our quest. Is that okay? Can you remember that one? We're blessed on our quest. Whatever journey you have, your discipleship, wherever you go, you're blessed on the quest. That's my line, Kuhn, for Ephesians 1. It's Thought you should know that. Didn't get it anywhere else. I made it up all on my own. Okay. You're blessed for the quest. I don't normally get things like that right. So that's like about as eloquent as I, as I become. So God has given us everything we need in the heavenly realms. If we drop down to verse 4, there's another interesting phrase that's there. It says, for he chose us. God the Father Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father blessed us with everything we need. And then it says, the Father chose us. Okay? Keep that in mind. And then if we go down to verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption. And I want to talk about those two phrases together. God chose you. He predestined you for adoption into His family. He predestined you. He wanted, He predetermined. It's very simple. It's not theologically complex. He decided beforehand that he wanted you to be part of his family. Okay? There's a purpose to that. Why did God choose you? The text says, before the creation of the world. So before you were born, before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, okay, God chose you because he knew you were coming. That's how intentional God is with your life and the purpose of your life. He chose you. Before you did anything, before you deserved anything, before you did anything wrong, before you did anything right, God chose you for a purpose, to be holy and blameless. Now, we hear the word holy, and I wonder what picture comes to mind when you hear the word holy. Okay, I always think of these big old Catholic cathedrals. I don't know why, but that's my conception. When I hear the word holy, I think up and beautiful. Okay. The word holy just simply means this. It means to be set apart. So when you live a holy life, it's a life that's set apart for God. So it's basically the life of a disciple. Is that okay? It's a life dedicated to God. So God chose you to live a life that's, that's dedicated to Him. 
wonder if you ever had that wonderful privilege at school where, like usually in physical training classes, what do they call them these days? PE classes, okay, torture, someone said, um, where they made two teams, and then, you know, you would pick one, and then the next guy picks one. Do you remember that game? Okay. And you always, like, stood there praying whether you were a Christian or not. You prayed because you didn't want to be lost, because right? that, like, said a whole lot about you, okay? I, I never knew what that was like, because I was always, like, one of the guys who got chose to choose, Okay. <laughs> I'm actually serious. Um, <laughs> no. But the interesting thing is, you know when you got chosen, first of all, you were really happy that you were chosen, but then the next step is that you're now part of the team and you actually have to contribute to the team. Okay. And it's a little bit like that. God chose you for a purpose. Your contribution is to be holy and blameless. Okay. It's part of how you respond to what God has done for you. He chose you also not only to be holy and blameless, but to be part of His family. And we're saying earlier tonight, I am a child of God. Now when you sing it, you should believe what you're singing. You're a child of God. And this speaks to this place of identity and belonging. Some of us come from wonderful families, some of us don't. Some of us don't come from families at all. We come from broken homes and, and different situations. It doesn't matter where you come from. When you know that God has chosen you, and you believe that, and it kind of drops from your head to your heart, something happens in the sense that you know who you are, and you know where you belong. And Letitia spoke a little bit about that last week as well. And that begins to define you. I'm no longer primarily defined by the family I was born into, or the family that I have now, my wife and my daughter. I'm not primarily defined by my peer group. I'm not primarily defined even by my culture. All those things are significant. They have their place. But my primary, the first place I find identity and belonging is by being part of the family of God. Please note just two other interesting phrases as we finish up looking at what God the Father has done in these first, verse 3 to 6. There's just some emotive language in the next slide. It says that it was His pleasure and His will, and He freely did this. It's interesting that this wasn't like something that the Father did because, you know, He was angry with us and then Jesus sorted it out for us. This was God's idea. This is something God wanted to do. He wanted to bless you. He freely did it. It was His pleasure to adopt you and bring you into his family. I can follow a God like that. I can so do that. So, just in summary, what has God the Father done as primary agent? He's blessed us for all we need on our quest. We're blessed on our quest. He chose us before the creation to be holy and blameless. So he chose us, and then he adopted us by accepting us into his family. Let's keep going, and I'm going to pick up pace a little bit, because we're going to focus now a lot on what Jesus has done. Okay, so we want to read verse 7 to 10, and we'll read 11 and 12 as part of this section as well. So verse 7 starts and says, in him, in Jesus. Okay, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. 
to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so the first two words that strike me there as I read verse 7 are the words redemption and forgiveness of sins. And this is true. In Jesus, he paid the price for our sin. It says he did this from the riches of his grace. Now, grace is not theologically complicated either. It just means you couldn't earn it and you didn't deserve it. Song words, just songs help with theology if they're good songs. Okay. Christian songs. No, some people build theology on very interesting songs. Okay. You couldn't earn it and you don't deserve it. But Jesus died for you any way. He paid the severe price for your sins. And in Jesus, in Him, in Christ, there is a real forgiveness, a real salvation, and a real freedom for our sins. It also says in verse 8, I said this morning, I preached on this passage this morning as well. You know these sales ads where you see where they say, not only do you get this, but you get this, and if you do it now, then you get... Okay. It's a little bit like this in Ephesians, although I'm not a salesperson. Okay? And it's the Bible, not an ad. But it's like God has done this. The Father has chosen you. He's adopted you. He's blessed you with everything you need. And you get forgiveness. And you get redemption from your sins. And, and, it's like it's just... There's more and more. And that's this one sentence that Paul writes. It kind of just flows out of him. It's just so caught up in everything that God has done. Verse 9, it says that in Jesus, he has made known to you the mystery of his will. Now, the word mystery there is not strange. In the, in the New Testament, when the word mystery is used, it just means that something that was not known previously has now been made known. So in the Old Testament time, it wasn't clear. It wasn't put, you know, exactly mapped out how God was going to do it. But now Jesus came, and what was unclear is now clear. What was hidden is now plain. And so in Jesus, every, the plan of God that might have not been so clear is now made plain. God made the mystery of his will. It's in Christ that we find out what God is all about. It's in Christ that we find out what God is after. And it's only in Christ. If you drop down to verse 10, it says, what's God's will? What's his purpose. It's to bring unity, sorry, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. We use the word here to reconcile. God's purpose is to bring everything together under Christ. Now part of that is your and my salvation. But my salvation, your forgiveness of sins fits into this bigger thing that God is doing in the universe. Because when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, sin entered the world. And it twisted everything. It affected everything. And so what God is doing in Jesus is he's restoring us to him, but he's also restoring everything else. The Bible says unity to all things. And again, if you go into the deep Greek and you look at the word all, guess what it's going to mean? All. You guys are doing so well with your Greek. It's amazing. Okay. But God's purpose is to reconcile all things to him. And I find place in my story, in the bigger story of what God is doing. I find how I fit into God's plan. God's plan isn't just that you get saved. It is. But that's not the end. You know, when you said the sinner's prayer and you've believed all the right things about Jesus, that's not the end. 
That's not the end purpose. That's kind of like the beginning. That's where you start now to be part of God's kingdom. That's where you start, like we're saying, let heaven come. As it is in heaven. So that's when you become an agent for God in fulfilling His purposes and all that He intends. And actually, by the way, if you think about your life a little bit, God's been doing this anyway. He's been reconciling things. He's been aligning what you believe and how you behave. He's been dealing with your sin so that you stop doing it and you start living a life that's set apart for Him. He's been working good in your life already. Please note again these words in verse um, 8 and, and 9. It says, He lavished His forgiveness on us. He lavished His grace on us. And it was His good pleasure. Again, this, these are strong words. This is not duty. This is something God wanted to do for you and I because He chose us and made us part of His family. Let's read verse 11 and 12. It says, In Jesus, in Him, you were also chosen, that idea again, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, probably meaning the Jewish believers, might be for the praise of His glory. Again, this idea that we were chosen in Christ. It's like God claimed us to be His. But then it also says this other interesting phrase. It says that He works everything in conformity with his purpose. It's a repetition of this idea that he's reconciling everything to himself. It doesn't matter what deviations and detours you've taken on your life. It matters not the bad things you've done and the mistakes you've made. Some of the worst mistakes I've made, the biggest sins I've committed, I did after I became a Christian. It's the problem with becoming a Christian when you're 15. You make all your mistakes in your 20s. But God takes those. He takes the good things, he takes the mistakes, and he works them into his will. He works everything to be in conformity with his will. And he's doing that in your life. Romans 8.28 says he's working good if you love him and you're called to his purpose. God is working good. So in quick summary, because I want to get to God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, he's redeemed us. Through his sacrifice. He forgave us. He revealed his will to us. And he's busy conforming our lives according to his will. He's busy conforming our circumstances according to his will. As we yield to him, as we cooperate with him, God is doing that. Last two verses that we're going to um, look at tonight. And then I believe there's a specific challenge from God for us. Verse 13 and 14. It says, You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. So you believe in Christ, and then you are marked with him with a seal. What's that seal? The promised Holy Spirit, or more literally in the Greek, the Holy Spirit of promise. Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when we get born again, God's Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. Now, I didn't know that was in the Bible when I was 15 and got born again, but it's always nice when we have our experience aligned with Scripture. found this out afterwards. It was very helpful. Okay. So we, it's very good to have Christian experience. Christian experience is valid. 
we always just make, need to make sure that it's a biblical experience, that we find reference or something in Scripture that points to it. In old ancient times, sometimes people still do it, is when they used to write letters, they would melt, drip wax on it, and then they would either have like a signet ring or a stamp, and they would put their seal on the letter. And that meant that this letter was, couple, first of all, it was authentic. It came from them. And then it also meant that if that was a person of authority, that what was in that letter carried their authority. It was their will. And there's this idea behind this phrase that Paul uses where he says, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. It's the seal, a sign of God's authentication on our lives. It's a sign of his approval. We've believed in him and he goes, that's my son. It's probably not a stamp, okay, but that's my daughter. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us as a sign that we belong to God. But it also says in this phrase that the Holy Spirit is like a deposit or guarantee of things that are yet to come of our inheritance. And so as the Holy Spirit lives in us, He gives us confidence to know that what we believe is real. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where maybe you've been serving Jesus for a while and you go, I hope this works. I hope this is actually real. I hope this is not like just a thing I'm on, something I've been heard in church and I'm holding on to. You know what you do in those times? You know what I do? Because it happens sometimes. I do the strange thing. You know what I do? I pray in tongues. Not, not to cast out evil, because there's this thing I can't explain that the Spirit speaks through me in tongues. And then I go, well, where did this come from? Well, I, don't, I know where it came from. But that is an evidence that what we believe, what we hope for, that, that thing that Jesus said, that He would save us and give a life eternal, Presence of the, it's not praying in tongues that's the evidence. The presence of the Spirit in us. Let's just be, we need to be clear theologically here now, okay? It's a present before Q and I see he was looking at me. Okay. The presence of the Holy Spirit in me lets me know that what I believe is real. That God has put a deposit in my life because everything He's paid for and everything He's bought for me is going to become real in my life. So the Holy Spirit, God in the Holy Spirit, seals us. We are claimed by God as his and it serves as a guarantee it's also confirmed in that scripture in second corinthians 5 5 it says that the holy spirit is the guarantee of everything that god promised and this is really where the rubber meets the road how do i take every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and translate it into my reality how do i take my sunday into monday how do i take what i believe into what i behave into how i behave and I do that by working with the Holy Spirit. So when you get to class tomorrow, or school, or work, or you get home tonight with your family, or in the week, and there's this tricky situation, or there's this pressure, or there's demand, and things are difficult, how do I take that which Christ has provided for me in the heavenlies and bring it in? I pray. I go, Holy Spirit, quietly, preferably. Depends on the situation. Holy Spirit, what have you provided for me in this situation? Another way to look at it is, God, what are you already doing in this situation? Because there's no place I step into, no situation that I step into where God isn't. And God perhaps hasn't been working already. And so I pray and I say, Holy Spirit, how do I take that which you've provided for me and cooperate with what you're doing here? How do I step into what you're already doing? And suddenly you get an idea. 
or God gives you peace when everything around you is going wild, or when people are attacking you, you go calm. Not like frozen, just there's peace in your heart because God just imparts it to you by His Spirit. When you're faced with sin and temptation, Holy Spirit, come and help me. You've promised me that you'll always make a way out and I won't be tempted beyond what, you can, beyond what I can bear. Come and help me. And you move your focus from the temptation to the Spirit and suddenly the temptation is not so strong anymore. And then that which has been provided for me in the heavenly realms comes down into my reality. But it takes a little bit of discipline. And it takes this desire in me to be holy and blameless and to say, God, what are you doing here? And how do I translate this into my life? And so we're talking, we've looked a lot now at everything that God has done for us. He's blessed us with all we need. He's chosen us. He's adopted us into his family. He's forgiven us our sins. He's washed us with his blood. He's revealed his will to us. He's conforming all things in our life to his purpose. He's sealed us. He's marked us with his ownership. And he's given us a deposit so that we know that that which is to come is real. But as we go on this disciples' quest, I wonder how you respond to everything that God has done for you. Do you respond by going, well, that's just merely something I'm going to believe. I've now looked at 12 or 13 verses in the Scripture, and so I know more stuff. Or do you go, I want to allow that to change my life. I want to allow that to make me a disciple of Jesus. And so maybe you've decided years ago that you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Not just, I'm drawing a false distinction, but not just a believer, but a follower. Not just a believer, but a disciple. And I believe that's a challenge that God has for us tonight in this place. Are you prepared to commit afresh, or perhaps even for some, to commit for the first time to become a disciple of Jesus? One who walks in Jesus' footsteps, who eats his dust, who lives to change, to learn about him. As we prayed before the service, there was a very clear prophetic word that came that God wants to restore people's love or increase people's love for the Bible. Okay? And so I'm going to pray that, that God lights a flame in each of our hearts that we love the Bible more, we want to read it more. It won't be so much discipline, it will be passion. Okay? So how do, one of the things I do when I commit to a life of discipleship is I commit to learn about Jesus. And the best way to do that is to read the Bible. Another thing you can do from next term, is that right? Well, starting tonight, not only do you get all the blessings of Jesus, you can sign up tonight. <laughs> uh, the, the, the young adult leaders are starting with a discipleship initiative. And they're going to call it flock groups because we are all Jesus' sheep. Okay? It's, it's like cool now. I made it very cool there. Eh? Starting an initiative for young adults where you can join a flock group. It's a small group where you can form a band of brothers or a sisterhood. And you can walk together and learn from one another. Encourage one another in the journey. You can be part of a smaller group, a flock group. If you join a smaller group, that can help you in your discipleship journey. I would suggest you come on Saturday night 
and uh, listen to these folks. I've listened to believers from the Middle East. Have any of you ever heard Christians from the Middle East talking? Man, they know about being a disciple. Man, they know about the cost. Okay? You don't have to become like them, and you don't have to go live in Egypt or Algeria. Or, that's not the purpose of this. But to hear the passion and the dedication of their lives, it just it's inspiring. I'm going to try to be here also. Um, but where are you? Are you prepared to commit for the first time or to commit afresh to pursuing the disciples' quest? Not out of self-effort, but in response to the blessings that God has given you. Are you prepared to commit to say, I'm going to align my life with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing? I'm going to walk. Later on in Ephesians, it says that you need to walk in the Spirit. It does. It's Ephesians. So yeah. You need to walk in the Spirit. I get mixed up. Ephesians, Galatians. Um, Literally, that means that you walk in step with him. But that's chapter 5. We're only in chapter 1 now. So you need to keep coming so that you can figure out how to get there. I'm going to pray a prayer. And while I'm praying, won't you put your heart before God as honestly and as openly as you can and decide if you want to respond to this challenge. And then I'll make opportunity for you to do that. Father, when Paul wrote this, the next thing he does is he prays. Now I want to pray that prayer that's in the rest of the chapter of Ephesians. As people are sitting here, I pray that by your Spirit, you challenge. By your Spirit, you convict. By your Spirit, you love and draw people into your purposes. But I want to pray for each one here, Lord, that they would know you better that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and understanding so that they can know you better. I want to pray that they would know the hope to which you have called them, that they would know the hope we have and the reality of what we believe. Lord, I specifically want to pray that. I think there might be people here who have like blinkers over their eyes, maybe like Paul in the book of Acts where it says that scales fell from his eyes when Ananias went and prayed for him. Lord, I want to pray you give people spiritual sight tonight so that they can see and they can know. And then, Lord, the last thing that Paul prays for the Ephesians is that they would know your incomparably great power, that power which God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I want to pray, Lord, as I give opportunity for people to respond shortly, that they would know your power to change their lives, to change their families, to change their communities, to change their workplaces, to change their world, and the power to do miracles and signs and wonders. And so as you've been reflecting, and if you want to, there is no pressure. You don't have to. Because maybe you've done this already and that box is already ticked in your life. But if you want to respond and say, I'm going to go on the disciples' quest. I'm going to commit to being a follower of Jesus, not to only believing about Jesus, but to living for him and to patterning my life on him. I'd like to, just where you are, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front or anything like that. I'd like to invite you to stand.
Father, thank you for each life that is responding to you. Lord, when I was 15 and I responded to you, I would never have imagined what you have, where you've taken me, the places I've seen, what you've done in my life, in my family. I would never have imagined any of those things. And Lord, I pray that for each one standing, that you would, in the adventure of their life, take them to places they wouldn't have believed, heal in them things that they just never thought could be fixed, Give them a freedom that they could never, ever have imagined. Help them to respond to you and everything that you have for them. Lord, I pray for a fresh infilling of your spirit in each person's life so that they have the power to overcome. They have the power to pursue you. They have the passion to live for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Standing, you're welcome to be seated. Amen and amen.